0: Welcome to Remnant. How are we doing? Fantastic. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. If you're new to Remnant, I would love to meet you. Um, We're kind of a unique church. I talk about it all the time. Um, Actually, I don't really know that, to be honest, because I don't attend other churches. So uh, it just seems like we're a little bit odd, that's all, and we like that. So I'm glad you're here. Um, We're in the series. It's called... um, Bible 101, and it's a series about, um, well, it's really a series about how to read the Bible and at the same time how to uh, learn the book of Colossians and how to try to figure out what's the best way to find the secrets that God wants to read. And today and next week, I'm going to be teaching something that, guess what, I think is really important and I think it could change our lives. So uh, I'm excited about that. This week, uh, I titled the sermon, um, Oh Great, Expectations, um, because I think all of us have sort of been in that moment where we deal with expectations. We try to figure out, you know, how can we meet the expectations of others? I came from a musical family, um, almost the Von Trapp kind of family, uh, brothers and sisters that very musically talented. My mother was she sang opera, she went to college on a music scholarship. My dad loved opera and, and basically um, he liked anything where he could make his son dress up in a suit, go sit for hours on end, have an intermission and then do it again. Uh, so things like the symphony, the opera, uh, I spent a lot of time, I think there's very few operas I haven't actually sat through. I can't say I've seen them, but I have sat through them. And uh, unfortunately, I was gifted in sports. Uh, Music was not my deal. I I was really more into halftime, or more into sports than halftime, and I just didn't get it. I I didn't understand it, and I felt the pressure of not being able to perform, uh, of not measuring up to the expectations. And I don't think my family, my parents necessarily put that on me. I think I just felt it that pressure to continue the tradition. I've studied five instruments, just so you know. Um, Each one for almost a full day, almost. Um, I, I horribly failed at the recorder in fifth grade. That was my first attempt to try to do anything. By seventh grade, I had failed in order the guitar, the piano, the harmonica, the clarinet, And I finally tried the trombone, because I figured if I played the trombone, I could look at the guy next to me and just do what he does. (laughs) Finally, I failed even the cymbals. To this day, I can't clap and do anything else at the same time. I came from such a strong pedigree of musicians, though, and My brother and sister were all state and all world and first chair and all this stuff and they were just like, you know, just going doing stuff and they were all nurtured and grown up under the tutelage of a man named Dr. Sesh. Dr. Sesh anxiously awaited the youngest prodigy child that would come from the Burns family who would have enormous music potential and Like a trainer anticipating the young colt that he'd one day have run for the roses, Dr. Sesh kept looking at me, wondering what music talent I was gonna have. I think he thought I was purebred prodigy. I remember him looking at me in seventh grade as I floundered playing my copycat trombone. And we both knew the DNA line had mutated. (laughs) Something had happened. I don't know, it just it wasn't there, and um, I would have failed anything except maybe listening to music. My older brother just added this to his list of arguments as to why he was sure that I was adopted. I had no musical talent, so fortunately, Dr. Sesh convinced my parents to put me out of my misery and point me towards the ballpark. I'll always remember that feeling of how frustrating it was to not be able to perform, to not be able to do what people seem to think I should be able to do. I hated every single moment that I had to try to play a musical instrument. I had no desire. I had no talent and more importantly, no interest. I hated disappointing others though more. So I wanted to succeed, even at something I couldn't stand, because I didn't want to let anybody down. It wasn't until I had the freedom to run to the ballpark that I felt like I was me. I finally felt like I had found myself. I remember that sense of freedom. Have you been there? Have you been in that moment? Maybe I'm the only one here, but I would hazard a guess that everyone in this room has their story about the expectations of others. Sometimes those expectations are real. Sometimes there are expectations that we projected onto other people and we blame them because we don't want to blame ourselves. Either way, many of us have been paralyzed because of expectations. The expectancy of others that we so desperately want to meet, but on our best day with the wind at our back, the sun just right, everything perfect, we fall short. We all know the feelings of not measuring up. Maybe that's kept you from God. Maybe that's kept you from the church. People have told you about the expectations of God, told you that you don't measure up, convinced you that you're disappointing God in some way. And you've been paralyzed with guilt and frustration. The last place you wanna go is to a church where people can remind you of your failure. Yet your heart desperately wants to be set free. There's a part of you that knows something's missing and I need to find it. Perhaps you're here because something in you tells you that our relationship with God is not supposed to be that way. That we're supposed to feel free and there's something crying out inside of each of us that desires to just be free. To be who we were created to be. To pursue the things we love to pursue because that's how we were created. You want to pursue your dreams separate from the unrealistic expectation of other people. You want to run to your ball field. You crave freedom from bondage, from unmet expectations of others. Our quest for that kind of freedom is not a new one. Paul taught those at Colossae that false teachers have developed this list of false rules, false expectations. Teachings and regulations that have imprisoned people. And it's odd that Paul, who's imprisoned in Rome, understood that his freedom came in Christ, but the people who were free and not in prison were more imprisoned by the expectations of other people. It's one of Satan's oldest tricks. If he can't keep you from a relationship with Jesus then he'll keep you from the freedom that Jesus offers in that relationship so you'll never discover who you are in Christ. What better way to make you and me ineffective than to convince us that we're not good enough, that God is always disappointed in us, that he's always looking down wondering when we're going to finally get it together, to keep you so busy trying to earn the favor of God that you don't realize you already have it. But Where does freedom come from? How do we avoid the pressure to perform, to become something that we're not? When do we finally start living the life that God had planned for us instead of the life that other people planned for us? The answer is not found in rules or regulations or principles. The answer is found in discovering whose we are. It's found in our relationship with Christ. I think every person in this room needs in some way to be set free, to to be set free from the shackles of the piano bench, if you will, and to run to the ball field and swing for the fences. God's word through Paul could transform you and me today. If we apply it, it could unshackle you and set you free. Today, we're going to uncover some gold that's in these scriptures. A timeless truth locked away by God into these historical documents that show us truths that never change. Last week we looked at this verse. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are but a shadow of the things to come, but substance belongs to Christ. We talked about that last week. If you missed last week, please go back and watch it. I've given you the handout today of the notes that I took on the passage that we're looking at today. I'm not going to go through it line by line, but but you'll see as I teach the sermon that the things that are in those notes have been brought forth to teach so that we can understand what this is about. So let's go to Colossians 2, verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on a cynicism or the worship of angels, going in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Somebody's popping in your mind right now. Hope it's not me. All right, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together, grows, through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Paul continues his warning here about the false teachers, the mystics. They're coming to Colossae, he says, and they're coming for one purpose, to judge you, to enforce their beliefs upon you. Not only are they going to judge you, they're going to sentence you. They're going to disqualify you. They're going to come into your church and say, you don't belong here if you don't agree with them. So Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you and let no one disqualify you. These false teachers, these mystics, they're going to insist, they're going to demand that you agree with their truth, and they're going to require that you follow asceticism and the worship of angels, and these two things are linked. Asceticism is the process of denying everything about yourself. It's almost this sort of form of worship where if I just deny myself, if I devalue myself, if I just keep... Pushing myself to the dust and dirt that I am, that somehow that's going to make me worship God. The worse I can feel and look about myself, the more holy I'll become. These mystics taught that you weren't worthy to worship God. The best you could do, maybe, is to get the attention of one of his angels. So what the new teachers are coming and say is, look, you're so unworthy, you're so dirty, you're so horrible. Which is basically the Gnostic teaching. That God doesn't want anything to do with you. In fact, the only thing you can hope for is that maybe some angel will help you. An ascetic is one who lives a life of rigorous self-denial. Think of of the monk that's that's locked himself away. In addition to practicing legalism and mysticism, the Colossian false teachers are attempting to gain righteousness through self-denial. The church has been intimidated for centuries by those who advocate poverty as a way to spiritual maturity. It's been told often that money is the root of all evil in the church. A great misquote of Scripture. Scripture actually says the love of money is the problem. Many of God's choicest servants in the Old Testament, Abraham, Job, Solomon were extremely wealthy. Lazarus, extremely wealthy. God has always used people who all socioeconomic classes to carry out His mission. What He says is, it's okay to have the money, just make sure I can get it through you to my purposes. Don't love it. You're supposed to love me. God may call some of us to a life of self-denial. Many missionaries, for example, have the necessity of leading what are essentially ascetic lives, but they don't do so in an effort to gain more spirituality. Do you see the difference? Going on in detail about visions, Paul says. These false teachers are going to start telling you the visions that they've had. If you translated that a little more literally, it would mean to make a parade of the things which they have seen. The Gnostic prided themselves on these special revelations, these special visions that they had, that no one else had that gave them special knowledge from God, thus implying that they're more holy or have a deeper knowledge of the secrets of God that he's only going to reveal to a certain number of people who also are blessed like they are. There's a tendency in our human nature to move from objectivity to subjectivity. To shift the focus from the ancient, old, tried and true truths of God's Word and to focus on the experience of being at church. This has always intimidated weak believers and it's always challenged the church. We see this today in many of the more extreme charismatic movements. We believe at Remnant in the full expression of the Holy Spirit. All the gifts used in the body of Christ to glorify Christ given to us by the Holy Spirit. Each of us possessing different gifts. I could go on and on and on, but here's what I know. Most of what you see in the extreme charismatic churches is not of God. And it's not from the Holy Spirit. And inside of you, you can see it and feel it. In your spirit, you know. The tip-off is that Scripture always takes a back seat to the experience. If God's truth is misrepresented or placed on a back burner, whatever is experienced, no matter how impressive, is not from God. What God does always puts his truth up front. God never takes a backseat to goosebumps, ever. False humility, the worship of angels, supposedly having special knowledge, supposedly having special visions, do not make anyone more spiritual than anyone else. The only thing Paul says that makes you more spiritual is holding fast to the head of the church, locking into Jesus. Paul warns the Colossians and us, don't be intimidated by these voices. Don't be intimidated by these false claims. These people are devoid of the Holy Spirit. They're worshiping themselves. They've gone beyond the teaching of Christ and they're headed your way. Spiritual growth, Paul says, comes only from abiding in Christ. If he's not the head, then whatever is growing is not spiritual. Next verse. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. Paul moves on here and he says, some of the people who are coming to teach you are legalists. They're going to have a list of what you can and can't do. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. And those rules are based on human precepts and teaching, not on God's word. They're human religions passed off as if they're from God. It's defined more by what we don't do than what we actually do. Christianity is a moral religion. There are moral truths that we have, but at its foundation, it is a religion, a belief of positive actions, not just avoiding everything. It's what we stand against. What we stand against is not the key issue. The key issue is who do we stand for? He says, these are according to the commandments and doctrines of men. One aspect of legalism is that somebody takes their belief, their doctrine, and tries to stamp it with the authority of God. Paul warns them and us, false teachers are coming, they're coming with their own rules that they say are from God. Let me give you an example. God's word very clearly says, obey the Sabbath. The Old Testament is one of the big ten, obey the Sabbath. Okay. People started asking, well, what does that mean Exactly. What Jesus and God meant it to be was take a day and make sure you're focused on God. Don't focus on yourself. Don't worship yourself. Take a day, rest, and focus on God. It's simple. The rabbis ended up developing over 600 rules about what it meant to obey the Sabbath. You can't lift this amount. If this happens, you can only do this much. You can only walk this far. You can only do so many things. You'll read in the Bible, a Sabbath day's journey. There's nothing in the scriptures about how far you can walk on the Sabbath, but the rabbis decided anything, one step beyond this distance is work, and it violates the Sabbath. And they took their rules, and they put them on people. And we look at that, and we go, how ridiculous is that? Yet we add our rules about what worship should be, which version of the Bible we should read whether we should have certain things in our services or not, they're not in Scripture, they're man-made. Paul says, look, these people are coming and they're going to have rules. And Jesus came to set us free from the rules of man. And we need to experience that freedom. He continues, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He says these things, they look good. They're going to make sense to people. They're going to tell people what their itchy ears want to hear, but they're totally ineffective at changing anything about your life. This is like the greatest indictment against legalism in the entire Bible. They have no way of reducing... The indulgence of the flesh. Many of us in this room, all of us, are doing something that disappoints God. Guarantee it. We've rationalized it, we've explained it away, but in that area of our life, God's going, what are you doing? Jesus died on the cross for you, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? You know that's not what I want. But here's what we should know, that we should have learned as humans living on the planet for thousands of years. Telling somebody not to do something doesn't keep them from doing it. Just doesn't. Legalistic rules, they have this idea of wisdom, but they have no value because it doesn't change anybody. In fact, if you want to get somebody to do something, give them a rule against it. Self imposed religion is man trying to reach up to God, Christianity is God reaching down to man. It's so important to understand. It has the appearance of self-made religion, self-abasement and treatment of the body that's just incredibly pious and, and very much spiritual and we walk around doing all these spiritual things. But all it does is gratify our ego. It's another way of people doing it themselves. Instead of admitting that I'm screwed up, messed up and I need to change, God, please change me. We're still trying to live a life that impresses other people, ignores God, and somehow supposed to make us spiritual. Jesus said it this way, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. And they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward, which is what comes from man only. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus said, look, when you're freaking out, when you're doing all this fake stuff, you're only fooling yourself. The best you're going to get is the look of other people going, oh, look how spiritual they are. We want God to look at us and go, look how broken they are. Look how much I can change them because their hearts are now mine. So you have to wonder, why do we fall for this stuff? I mean, these things have been pulling people away from Christ for centuries. Why are they so effective? Why do we all struggle with this? What has Satan tapped into? Well, Satan knows that there's a flaw in our operating system, that we were created with a void. Something's wrong with us. We were born with a God-sized hole, and we don't really know what the problem is, but we know something's missing, and we seem to know that what's missing is spiritual. We can feel it. Every one of us has this sense of emptiness, the awareness that something's missing. And I'm not talking about people at church, I'm talking about people in general. How do we know that? Because every person is trying to find happiness and freedom and purpose. And they're going to all kinds of places to try to find it. Part of the fallen human experiences is that part of us that recognizes we're lost. We try everything. We've made religions out of everything. Let me give you an example just recently. Recently I thought, one time when I was in college, okay, I tried to use one of those straight razors, you know, I think I still have scars from where that happened. But anyway, now that I'm much older and wiser, I thought, you know what? I bet I could do that. I've held scalpels before. I've been in people's. Be- I could do this. this. How hard is this? So I decided I should go online and learn how people are doing this. Has it changed over the years? What you know? I mean, what's it like? Oh my! There's a religion online of people who shave their face with straight blades. And they see people who use any kind of Gillette quadruple $500 blade as heresy. And they've got a way of doing it. They've got a water temperature that you have to get to. They've got a certain way of getting the foam on there. They've got certain blades that have to match to certain things. And there's like 300 different kinds of blades and combinations based on what kind of thing you have. And they go through all this stuff. And then they start telling you about the, what they call this is great what they call the BBS. Their goal is to reach BBS, bottom baby shave. I'm not kidding. That's their goal. That's, that is their endpoint. I gotta get to that baby bottom shave. They've made a religion out of shaving. I'm not kidding, go on YouTube, it's hilarious. Whether you put this stuff on your face like this or whether you brought it like a brush, it's crazy. You can watch videos of people, literally people, for 40 minutes shaving their face. We can make a religion out of anything. We try to fill this emptiness with everything. Sex, drugs, alcohol, pride, shopping sprees, our bodies, our degrees, our athletic prowess, our artistic expressions. All of us try something. And what we're really looking for is to find value and purpose, because that hole that's in us without God is a hole that basically tells us we don't know why we're here, we don't know what we're doing, and we don't know what our purpose is. That's what's missing. And so what happens is we go try to find things that we do, and then we look to other people and go, is that good? Is that, do I have your approval? Oh, okay. And we look for the approval of other people to say we're okay. We, we get to a point where we realize at some point we can't fix ourselves. We can't find happiness and contentment and completeness in things outside of us. So then, as the intelligent humans that we are, we say, well, I bet my happiness is supposed to come from within. I can't find it out there, so it's got to be inside of me. I need to stop trying to find contentment. I just need to accept myself the way I am and I need to get everybody else to agree that I can be whoever I want to be. And it sounds great. I'm gonna follow my own truth. I'm gonna become my own standard. Whitney Houston, the greatest love of all is learning to love myself. That may be the saddest expression of human misery that's ever been put in a song. I'm gonna find the, the love that's in me, and oh, by the way, the love is me. I'm all I have. When we turn to ourselves for validation and completeness, we only require one thing to try to fill the void temporarily. I just got to get other people to agree with me and accept me exactly the way I am. I need the approval of others in order to feel good about myself and all my flaws at all. Because if you can feel good about my flaws, I don't have to change them. There's a book in the 70s called I'm Okay, You're Okay. National bestseller, and it was a bestseller because it fed into this kind of lunacy. I'm okay, you're okay. There's nothing wrong with us. We're all good. Everything's perfect. You keep telling me I'm okay, I'll keep telling you you're okay, and we'll just go through life happy. We seek the approval of others in our dysfunction. I'm okay, right? And we become imprisoned looking for the acceptance of other people. In recent years, this has been taken to a new extreme. If you don't say I'm okay the way I am, then you're not okay. You see, the problem is not me, it's you. You're intolerant. You're a racist. The new book, if it was written today, would say I'm okay and you better agree with me or you're not. We're moving into a world where there's no right or wrong. No standards, no judgment of anybody's behavior, a world full of excuses, void of accountability. Our culture worships tolerance above any standard of morality or truth. We are being forced not to tolerate sin, but to also stamp it with our approval. Tolerance is not approval. Let me repeat that. Tolerance does not mean Approval, I can tolerate a lot of things I don't approve of. I have to tolerate thousands of things every day that I don't approve of. It's part of living in a fallen world full of enemies of God. I turn on the TV and says, oh, I guess I gotta tolerate it. I don't like it. In this everyone gets a trophy, emotionally fragile generation, we have become seekers of the approval of other people. Don't tell me I finished second, because I didn't. I finished fifth, but give me a trophy. The opinion of others has been far more important than the opinion of God. We've lost our fear of God. If somebody asks me, what's wrong with the, the world today? We've lost our fear of God. And the major driving force of those who don't know Jesus is to demand the approval of others, no matter how dysfunctional or sinful they choose to be. But even those of us who have the Holy Spirit, even those of us who surrendered our lives to Christ, who filled that hole, who've experienced him fill that void inside of us, we still at times struggle here. We still feel it, don't we? I love Jesus. I know he loves me, but I just can't get over the expectation of other people. I'm constantly worried and trying to figure out what they think. I can't get over my concern about what other people are thinking. I want them to live like me. I want them to think I'm funny and smart and beautiful and a good parent, a spouse, and friend, solid follower of Jesus. I want those things. It matters to me what other people say. So many Christ followers still live in bondage to the opinion of other people. We fail to experience the freedom that Jesus says, I want you to be free to be who you are. We fail to run to the ballpark and swing for the fences because we don't understand or we haven't embraced the truth about our relationship with Jesus and who we really are. We fail to embrace the freedom that Jesus died to bring to us. It's like he came to open the door of our cell and we want to stay in it. It makes no sense. But often my fear is about their opinion, whoever they are. I don't even know who they are, but I know they have opinions and I know that sometimes they can make me fearful. What they think is important to me. Can't seem to shake it. It's not just about whether or not you have the Holy Spirit. I know many, many people who have the Holy Spirit who are still struggling in this area of their life. It doesn't mean they've overcome it. It means they have the power to, they haven't yet learned how to use. And if that's you, then you're probably struggling with one of three things. First, if you're struggling, still listening to the opinion of other people, you haven't spent enough time in God's word. Straight up, you haven't. We're going to get into that a little bit. Because you don't fully embrace what God says about you. You don't fully understand the truth of what he says about you, how to embrace his love for us and how to connect to his heart. Because once you embrace how he sees you, you'll never again care what other people think about you. Second thing is, we don't believe what we've read in God's word. We don't believe that we're special. We don't believe that we're cherished. We don't believe that we're created exactly the way God wanted to create us. He put us in exactly the place he wanted us to be. He dotes over us. He sings over us. He loves us. We hear it, we read it, and we say, God, I just don't believe it. So I'm going to get the opinion of other people because your opinion, I just don't believe. You say I'm beautiful. You say I'm wonderful. You tell me I'm wonderfully made. That's really nice. I don't believe it. The third option is you've bought a lie about who you are. You've allowed someone other than God to define who you are. A voice from the past, a voice from the present. Someone is saying who you are and you're believing that lie instead of knowing the truth of what God says. Now for most people in the world, they don't have an excuse. They don't know what God's word says about them. Believers know. We know that he loved us enough to die for us. We know that he did that before We have cleaned up any of our sins. We know he takes us exactly the way we are. So it's not a matter of knowing. It's a matter of accepting. We've allowed false voices to shape us. So many Christ followers live in bondage. We never experience the freedom. We we never get to the fences. Jesus said this, John 8, 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We're going to spend quite a bit of time on this verse. So I'm going to ask you to leave it up. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Note the if in that verse. There's a dependent conditional clause here. Big words meaning it's an if-then. If you abide. Now let me just tell you this as an aside. When you're reading Scripture and you see an if-then, slow down. That's a speck in the river. It's telling you there's gold there. If you rush through... If you don't study the Bible, if you don't prioritize your time in scriptures, you're going to miss what this has to say. It's in the comparison that you often find the gold. Dependent clauses always bring two things together. If you do this, then this happens. They also bring the parallel negative. If you don't do this, this thing doesn't happen. This verse is where Jesus actually looks at his disciples and he says, you want to know how you're my disciple? I'm going to define it for you. Jesus tells us in this verse, you are truly my disciples. He gives us the definition. What makes me truly his disciple? I abide in his word. We got to pay attention to that. You are my disciples. You are truly my disciples if you abide in my word. Only his disciples abide in his word. No one who is not his disciple can abide in his word. In a minute, you're going to be start, well, what does abide mean then? We're going to get to it. The key point is we need to slow down and consider abiding in the word is a consequence of something disciples have and non-disciples don't. Jesus says, look, if you're my disciple, you're gonna abide in my word, okay? So what he's saying is there's something about my disciples that make them abide in the word. There's something about people who aren't my disciples, they'll never abide in my word, okay? The key thing to think about is, okay, so what does that mean? What is it that disciples have that non-disciples don't have that allows them to abide in the Word. Well, the only thing that separates believers from non-believers is the presence of the Holy Spirit based on faith in Jesus. What this verse is saying is, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you can't abide in the Word. It's impossible. You can't do it. If you have the Holy Spirit, You can't not abide in the word. He will drive you to it. The more we meditate on this verse, the more we realize this isn't about effort at all. It's not about being a scholar. This is so important to understand. Abiding in the word of God is not about knowledge. It's not about study. It's not about being a scholar. Lots of people study the scriptures. Lots of people have memorized the scriptures. A lot of historians have read the Bible more than you and I have. They can spend a lot of time uh, memorizing scripture. They can tell you all about them, but they've never once abided in God's word. I had guides in Israel. I've been to Israel twice. Every time you go to Israel, the Christians in the group always ask the same question How can they know so much about the Bible? and not believe in Jesus. How is that even possible? They know the Old Testament inside and out. They know the promise of the coming Messiah. They've read Isaiah 53. How in the world do they not know that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, the reason is they've never abided in the Word. The Greek word for abide... Is both a call and a command. In Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew, it means to be present with the intent of connecting. It means to be present with your entire body, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. John uses the word abide 43 times throughout the books of John, 1 John, and 2 John. It's used as a command a warning, an invitation to deeper relationship, an assurance, and a call to godly living. The word abide carries with it the meaning of continuing, enduring, awaiting, dwelling, being immovable without yielding. But I always tell you that Greek words carry with them a mental picture as well as a definition. The word abide in Greek is meno, It implies being centered in a relationship where all is well and is at peace. Shalom. When the Bible says abide, it's not saying read your book. It's not saying study the Bible. It's not saying memorize the Bible. When he says, I want you to abide in my word, I want you to abide in Christ, he's saying, I want you to be in my word with the purpose and intent of meeting me there. The reason you're in my word is not to memorize the word. I'll bring those to you when you need to know them. It has the idea of I'm going into the word because I want to experience and be centered in the presence of my God. I'm reading the book of the Bible like a child holding a book in the lap of their father. I want to be there for the experience. The book isn't the most important thing. It's true. It's wonderful. It's all those things. But the reason I'm abiding is because I have the Spirit in me. He is Abba Father. I'm a child of God. I'm crawling up in my father's lap, and we're going to read a book together. People who don't have the Holy Spirit never approach Scriptures with that intent. Jesus says, you want to know if you're one of my disciples? then you read the Bible and meet me in the pages because the Holy Spirit will draw you there. The abide is to live and stay in the very source of love and life and Christ. That's what abide means. Doesn't mean you read, doesn't mean you study, doesn't mean you're a scholar. You can study the Bible every day, all day long and never once abide because you've never met Christ in the pages because you don't have the Holy Spirit in you that brings you to those places. It's like you walk around the courtyard of the temple, but you've never been in the Holy of Holies. Anyone who lacks the Spirit, they've never abided in God's Word. They've never felt that sense of being centered in the experience. But the presence of the Holy Spirit changes everything. The key is not what you know about Scripture. The key is who you've experienced while you were there. Every time you go into Scripture, your goal should be God, I don't know what I'm supposed to learn. I don't know what's supposed to happen, but I need to be in your presence. I need to experience you in the midst of these truths. So Jesus says if you abide in my word, if you abide, if you meet me there, if you allow the Holy Spirit to take you to that place of holiness in the Scriptures, Then you will know the truth, and that truth will set you free. Isn't that interesting? Did you notice what's in this verse? What's this verse based upon? What's the underlying premise of this verse? You and I, and everyone we've ever seen, is not free, and we know it. He doesn't say, if you abide and if you're not free, then I'll set you free. He says, if you abide, you'll be set free. In other words, I know you're messed up. I know you're imprisoned by lies. I know you're imprisoned by the opinion of other people. If you meet me in the middle of the pages, if you abide with me, you're my disciple. You have the Holy Spirit and I'll free you from all this stuff that's kept you in bondage so you can live and become the person I say you are. Does that make sense? Jesus says, look, I know you're not free. You never have been free. How does he know that? Well, that's the nugget that's in these verses, the timeless truth. Freedom only comes from the Holy Spirit. And everyone needs him. Those who don't know him are not free and those who know him can be free. Jesus says, my disciples, they know the truth. Because they abide in the word. They soak in me. Yeah, we spend time studying the word, but what really happens is they're soaking in the presence of the spirit of God. And through that soaking, they begin to understand who they are, why they're here. Picture the father with the child in the lap reading the book. The power of being in that moment is listening to the words and feeling your father wrap his arms around you and tell you how much he loves you. You can be reading about it, almost anything. It's the experience that's abiding. When we abide with Jesus, he sets us free. He changes us from the inside out. We surrender and he transforms. He's the only way humans can ever be free. If you talk to people who abide in God's word frequently, they'll tell you, I don't worry about anything. I feel such peace. Everything's okay. I know who I am. I'm not tempted by what other people want me to do. I've heard the voice of my Father. And Jesus says this in just a few verses later, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. You see, there's a lot of things in this world that pass off as freedom. They're not. Freedom only comes from Christ. And notice, this is a conditional phrase too. If... He says, look, you will be set free, free indeed, only if Jesus does it. The lies you've heard, the worldview that shapes your conscious and your subconscious, that reel that you keep playing over and over that has no source from God, it has a stranglehold on you and on me, we can't help it. We can't stop it. We can't rise above it. We can't become enlightened enough. We can't use any human action or effort to make it go away. The only way to be set free, it has to come from Jesus. He changes who you are. Paul is writing to the Colossians. He's warning them about false teachers. He's reminded them of who God is, who Jesus is, what he's done, how we could do nothing apart for him. He tells us that we're in bondage. Because we believe the lies of others, we're still trying to fit in to be comfortable in a world where where we no longer belong. He says, look, let no one judge you, let no one disqualify you because of some self-made religion. If we can wrap our minds around the truth that's in this verse, it'll set you free. Not my words, Jesus's the antidote to dispel the lies that Satan has been pouring into your mind since you were old enough to hear. If you struggle with the opinions of others, I want to show you four truths in this passage that can set you free. The first one, freedom comes through faith in one. There's only one place you're going to find freedom through your faith in Jesus Christ. Anything else doesn't work. We are all going to place our faith in something. Right now, you are basing your life, your, your decisions. Everything about you is based on something, some faith that you have. It could be the opinion of your friends. It could be your financial plan. It could be the latest self-help, self-awareness guru. There are an unlimited number of false gods ready to receive your worship, ready for you to base yourself on those false truths. The crowd may be making a lot of noise. They may be cheering us on. They may be against us. We can't really listen to the crowds. At times in our lives, the voice of other people can be deafening. That's why elite athletes need a coach. They have to learn to ignore the crowd, to ignore the judges. I read once an Olympic, uh, I think she was a gymnast. They asked her, the crowd was going crazy. said, I never heard him. Really? All I could hear was the voice of my coach. That's the voice I listened to. If they listen to the advice of the crowd, they start failing. If they think about the opinions of those judging them, they'll freeze up. Elite athletes have learned that the only one voice stands out over the crowd, and that's the voice of their coach. They learn to focus on that voice, the voice of experience that resonates in their heart because they've learned that voice so many times in practice. They know that voice when that voice isn't even there. They know the crowd is inexperienced. They know the crowd is puffed up. They know the crowd doesn't know anything about what's going on, but they all have opinions. They're all telling them what they should and shouldn't do, but there's only one voice that carries weight with them because that voice has already made an investment in them. That voice, the coach, wants the very best for them. That coach is going to help them understand who they are, understand how they were built, what they were designed to do, what they can and can't do, how to get the very best out of them, and how to help them accomplish what they were brought there to accomplish. That's what a coach does. So Paul reminds us, we have to know who we belong to. We have to know what team we're on. We have to know what we were sent to accomplish. We have to silence the crowd with judgments, rules, opinions. And we just got to listen to the voice that got us there. It's not complicated. So Paul reminds us, in order to be set free, you got to know whose you are. You got to know what team you're on. Can you imagine going into something and listening to the coach from the other team? I mean, can you imagine you're playing a game and you just, oh, oh. Kick it in that goal. Okay, I'll kick it in that goal. And all of a sudden, you realize you're you're not only not working for your team, you're working against your team. Yet we go out in the world as followers of Jesus Christ, and we let Satan. Oh, oh, that's not true. Okay, all right, that sounds good. That'd be fine. We're not even following the rules. For some people, it's the opinion of their friends. It, It can be anything. Those who are puffed up with their knowledge. Paul says, don't listen to those puffed up with their knowledge. What he's saying is, that's a different team. Those who want to tear you down and discourage you, that's a different team. You know not to trust the voices that come from the other team. Our faith is in one, Jesus alone. He's the only voice we listen to. He's the only one worthy. His his truth matters. Nothing else matters. Second truth. Freedom comes from an audience of one. Freedom comes from an audience of one. There will always be people who want to subject you to their rules and their expectations. Their ideas of right and wrong. Their ideas of morality. Morality their ideas of self-discovery, their expectations. They're quick to judge us and condemn us and ridicule us. Trying to manipulate us in order to control us. Trying to build themselves up while putting us down. Trying to conform us to a worldview and a world perspective that makes them feel comfortable. Yet Paul reminds us in this passage that we have an audience of one. The only thing that matters is what's been set by Jesus, his standard. The only opinion that matters is the one held by Jesus. The only judgment that matters is the one that comes from Jesus. The only voice that should matter is the one that comes from Jesus. My sheep know my voice. I'm their coach. I'm their cheerleader. I'm the one they need to be listening to. So many of us are trying to live up to expectations that don't even apply to us. I was thinking about high school when I wrote this sermon. When I was in high school, I thought the opinions of my friends was the most important thing on the planet. It was critical to me that my friends thought I was cool. I mean, I was, but I mean, it's important to me that they thought that and that I measured up. I wore a polyester lime green suit to church, I mean, to school. Bright orange flowered silk shirt, huge collars, shirt unbuttoned to expose my amazing chest two-inch dance fever heels, a shark tooth necklace, long hair with a well-established mullet, hair parted in the middle, oversized glasses. I thought I looked cool because they said I did. I let them define who I was. I let them determine my importance. I let them set my values and determine my worth. I listened to so many voices that I didn't even care about me. I missed out on the joy of discovering who I was at that age because I was so busy trying to be somebody else for somebody else. My self-image and my self-esteem was subject to the opinion of a bunch of acne-ridden, inexperienced, hypercharged adolescent children who thought they were grown up, thought they had it all figured out, and thought they had me all figured out. But looking back, when I think about those days and the stupid things I did to try to get their approval all I see is missed opportunity. I was paralyzed in fear. I was held in bondage by their shifting opinions of what's cool. And the sad part is, looking back, they had the only voice in my life, the only reason they were speaking into my life is because I let them do it. Now I don't even know where they are. How could I have given so much of my life trying to please people who never loved or cared for me? How could I have been so unaware of who I really was. And do you want to know what's really sad? At times, I'm still doing it today. Sometimes I listen to the voice of, voice of those who don't care about me. The names and faces, they've changed over the years, but they are still out there. They want to steal my joy. They want to hold me in bondage with their opinions. They want to define my worth, my value, and my purpose. They want me to join them in fear and worry. Sometimes they can be so loud and so persistent that I struggle remembering what team I'm on. I let sometimes the voice of the crowd drown out the voice of my Savior. It's one thing I've learned as a pastor it's critical to listen only to the voice of Christ. You can't play to the crowd, you've got to listen to God and God alone. We need to all know who we're living for because our faith in Jesus, there's only one source of truth. There's only one person who sets expectations. There's only one person who defines our value. There's only one opinion that matters. We play to an audience of one. Jesus says this, or Paul says this, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. There's that word again. Assuming you're not free. The word, the Spirit of life, the Holy Spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. None, no condemnation, only freedom. When I embrace this truth, the crowd doesn't matter anymore. We're all part of a body. The head is Jesus. We're all playing our role. He's the sole source of our self-esteem. He sets our value. And oh, by the way, he says it's sky high. He's the one worthy of our worship. He's the one devoting your life to. As I abide in Scripture I am set free because in Christ I begin to understand who I really am. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Uniquely created for a purpose. Uniquely gifted to serve other people. Adopted into the family of the king. Highly valued. Jesus died for me and through his precious blood, he bought my freedom. I begin to live in that freedom and I begin to understand who I am and why I'm here. I place my faith in one and I have an audience of one. Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We need to live in that truth. The third thing, freedom is only found in one. Jesus is the one who sets us free. When it finally clicks in our brain who we now belong to, everything changes. Jesus announces ministry this way, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty, freedom to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus said, look, I came to set you free. Why are you not free? Well, because you're not abiding. That's why. I came to proclaim liberty to the captives. That's you to set at liberty those who are oppressed. When we study God's word, when we abide in God's word, when we meet him there, he changes us from the inside out because we've had an experience, not a head knowledge thing. The closer we get to him, the easier it is to recognize his voice. As we abide in him, we marinate and soak in his truth to the point that when we're not abiding in him, it still oozes from us. Our time alone with Jesus in prayer and his word breaks the shackles of the opinions of others. Lies that say we'll never measure up, lies that say we're worthless, lies that say we're not beautiful, not special, not spectacular. God never intended that our self-image, self-esteem, or self-value would come from anyone other than him. Let me repeat that. God never intended that our self-worth, self-value would come from anybody other than him. Why would you look at other flawed humans born with a sin nature to validate your holiness? Paul knew that they would be in bondage to false opinions, false expectations, and false religions of man. So then he tells them in 1 Corinthians, you were bought with a price. Don't become a slave of men. Think about that. You were bought with a price. Jesus has died for you to give you freedom. Don't be a slave of the opinions, the expectations, and the stupidity of men. Stop it. Fourth truth. Freedom comes only through the transformational power of one. As we focus on Jesus, the voices of those competing with him begin to fade. Like an athlete shuts out the crowd, the opinion of others just kind of goes away. The voice of our savior becomes so loud. Not something that we do, but something that just happens. Something is changing us. The opinions we used to think that were so important now seem silly as we begin to read his love letter, as we begin to feel his love, as we sit in his lap, as we abide in him in the scriptures, as we see his truth, he begins to change who we are from the inside out. We don't become a new improved version of our older self. We become new people in Christ. We start to gain an understanding of things that aren't of this world. Next week, Paul's going to dive into this more in Colossians, but let me just read to you from Romans. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable. Jesus came to set captives free. The shackles that we're in bondage to are the ones we've given ourselves, the teachings, the false beliefs, man-made ideas, letting other people establish our worth. Those are things we've allowed to happen. We've become conformed to the world, we've allowed and been applying those mind games forever. The key that unlocks your shackles, the truth that's hidden in this verse, the key point of this verse, the take home that was true then is true now and will always be true. Knowing who we are in Christ sets us free. It's not knowing about who we are. When we know to the core of our being who we are in Christ then we're set free. And the only way to know that is to abide with him and his word. So tomorrow we're going to go into our world and the crowd is poised to voice their opinions. They're loud and they're brash, confident they're going to critique everything you do. They're only going to have influence in your life if you let them. So you got to leave this building today knowing what team you're on you're going to hear the ranting of the crowds. But you've got to listen to the voice of your Savior. When we leave this building today, we need to know who we are, whose we are, and what voice we're listening to. Tomorrow, they've already queued up commercials for us. They're full of lies, telling us that our lives are incomplete, that our image is everything, that we deserve everything our way that we're one purchase or one beer away from the most incredible weekend we could ever have. But you reject those lies because you know the truth. You're complete in Christ. Your life is not about greed, but about gratitude. And because he's met your needs, you don't need your wants. You're content in him. Abiding in Christ sets us free. Tomorrow, fearful people are going to be desperate for peace, and they're going to want to have you meet them and swim in their fear. To believe that it's normal. To live constantly in anxiety and fear. They're going to point you to Oprah's latest guru with the latest book and the truth of how to live. But you reject those lies because you know the truth. You've understood that there's a peace that transcends all understanding. And you know there's no spiritual truth that the Bible doesn't already contain. You're not in need of some guru in his book. You follow Christ who's preeminent over everything. Remember, all things are through him, for him. He holds it all together. He even holds together Oprah and her band of revolving gurus. And the one book that is never on Oprah's list is the number one bestseller of all time, The Eternal Word of God. You reject them because Paul warned about puffed up people with self-professed visions who proclaim to be enlightened intermediaries. Magazines, movies, TV shows, they're going to define the beautiful people for you. They're airbrushed computer-generated photos of some person's fantasy shout to women that they don't measure up. Telling incredible women that they don't measure up. Telling people who are created by Christ and absolutely incredible, they gotta starve themselves, they gotta have surgery, they gotta vomit, they gotta inject Botox to meet self-professed expectations driven by the lies of other people who don't know that their value in self-worth and their sexuality was created by Jesus for God for their life on earth. They need to live in that. So many women have bought the lie. But you reject those lies because you know the truth. True beauty comes from Christ. You're exactly the way God created you to be. You're beautiful and wonderfully made. Your body and your sexuality was given to you by God as a gift for your husband. To be shared with him and him alone within the confines of marriage under a covenant with God. Anything else is sinful and an affront to God. Your true beauty comes from your soul, not from the opinion of other people. That beauty that never fades and actually increases with age because of whose you are and what's inside of you. You refuse to let sex-crazed fallen society define who you are to tell you who you should look like or, or to limit in any way the value that God has already placed on you in Christ. You see, abiding in Christ sets you free. Perhaps this day you came into this room burdened by the opinions of other people, not fully aware of who your audience really is, desperately seeking freedom but not finding it. Perhaps you're like me today, sitting on that piano bench, Wondering when you can be set free and run to the things that you truly desire. Stop trying to impress and meet the expectations of people who have you in a place you don't even want to be. Because it turns out you were created to be something totally different. When you finally embrace the real truth of who and whose you are, you discover that surrendering to Jesus is like breaking away from the piano and running to your ball field, finally free to be who you are, discovering that the shackles of others belong to others. The shackles of others belong to others. Don't pick them up and don't put them on. They're only put on you if you allow it. So choose to make tomorrow different. Think about Paul's question to them and us. Since you died to Christ and the basic principles of this world, why do you live as though you still belong to it? Why do you submit to its rules? Rather, learn the timeless truth of this passage, knowing who we are in Christ sets us free. For years, I was imprisoned by the expectation that I would play wonderful music, that I was the prodigy they'd hoped for. After my failure, they said... I'd never, ever be able to play an instrument. That my music wasn't any good. They were probably right. But fortunately, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I can't play an instrument. But in Christ, I've become one. My life and your life too is an instrument in the hand of Almighty God playing music no one can believe. And the music he plays through our lives resonates in our soul and is eternal. Touches others, it worships him, and it completes us. Surrendering to Christ, our lives become part of a glorious symphony taught by the Holy Spirit, orchestrated by Christ, and applauded by the Father. The timeless truth in this passage, knowing who you are in Christ, sets you free captive it's time to embrace your freedom you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free let's pray God I thank you for this incredible passage God help all of us to know your word to abide with you to meet you in those pages to soak in your love to open that book with the intent of being instead of the intent of knowing you'll teach us what we need to know It's in our surrender that we discover who we're to be. Thank you for this truth, God. Give us the courage and the power to set aside the voice of the crowd, to let go all those expectations that have been put on us that don't define us and to hear only you and to hold only your truth as true because it's in Christ that we're truly set free. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.